Hi folks, Shaq Spirico here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you today with episode 474 of the Survival Podcast. It is Tuesday, July 13th, 2010. And uh, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to revisit kind of a core concept of the entire show uh, the entire philosophy of what we're about, what we stand for, and, and, and how the survival podcast and our community's philosophy of how to survive is maybe different from um, other survivalist communities to a degree, definitely different from the stereotypes that are out there in the media. What makes this a good thing for you? What makes this a good thing for anybody tuning in maybe for the first time today? What makes this sane and rational? How do we analyze a situation and determine what our actions are? Uh, this was actually multiple points on my survival philosophy, and they got combined together because I realized the probability, impact, and commonality were so tightly intertwined that you really couldn't understand one fully without the other two being a part of it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I know it's things we've talked about in the past, but I really haven't gone over this subject for, I would say, about six months. And uh, as I've been doing some interviews lately, I've realized that this is something we need to get back and talk about once in a while. So that's what we're going to do today. For that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, ShelfReliance.com. Note I said shelf, like something you put a book on, not self, like the person and human that you are. Yes, ShelfReliance.com, specializing in the storage of your storable food, uh, specifically with products like the Cancellator and the uh, Harvest 72, which allow you to store canned goods in large or small quantities depending on your needs and practice eat what you store, store what you eat by creating automatic rotation in your preps. One of the coolest companies and one of the most innovative storage systems that I've ever seen. I know that some people looked at my video on the Harvest 72 and said it didn't look like a very efficient use of space. Do not let the optical illusion fool you. If you uh, take a look at how much food is actually stored in something like the Harvest 72, it is actually mind-boggling. They're also highly configurable, so if you don't have any number 10 cans, you can replace that uh, bottom row with uh, additional rows for smaller cans to store even more food. So check out Shelf Reliance. If you need help with custom configuration, give them a call. They'll be glad to help you out. Next up today, Marjorie down south of Austin with Backyard Food Production. Um, it's an amazing DVD. If you haven't ordered it yet, I have one question for you. Why not? Uh, if you're listening to this show, odds are you want to do a better job of providing your own food and creating your own self-sufficient little mini homestead either in the city or in the country. If you want to do that, or if you even want just the knowledge of how to do that, doesn't it make sense to take a look at exactly what somebody has done to make it happen for themselves? If you want to look at something where you've got a family that lives about 80% of their resources come from their own property, 
take a look at Backyard Food Production and their DVD. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Next up today, I want to remind you about our gear shop. We have shirts, we have hats, we have all kinds of cool stuff. And the mugs are here. At least my mug is here. I'm sure your mug, if you ordered one in pre-order, will be there very soon. If not today, I would say tomorrow at the latest because they all got shipped uh, within the same two days. They are absolutely beautiful, these French press coffee mugs emblazoned with a silver logo of the Survival Podcast. Check these things out. I got it yesterday, and I tell you what, um, we've, we've, we've done a lot of things here at the Survival Podcast. When I looked at that, it was right up there with the challenge coins that are available at the gear shop, where I just looked at it and went, wow. You know, it's really awesome what we've created, and to see the brand emblazoned that way, it's such a functional product that serves your day-to-day needs and needs for, you know, when the power's out, as long as you can boil water, you can still make coffee, so um, it's a great product. Please check those out. If you haven't ordered one in pre-order, they're now in inventory, they're shipping, you know, uh, the, the week that you order them, so uh, consider ordering some of those. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. I've just revamped the page that explains all the details. So, you know, why not? If you've been thinking about it, go by the survivalpodcast.com today and click on the Members uh, tab or on the Member Support Brigade uh, uh, banner and take a look. Take a look at what's going on, what we're doing. And take a look at the benefits you get and make an assessment for yourself. Say to yourself, is the Survival Podcast worth two dimes every time I listen to Jack? And do I get a bigger than $50 a year return if I have all of these benefits? If the answer is yes, consider joining. If you're paying your credit card debt off and you're deeply in debt, you're sitting on $10,000 worth of credit card debt, let me say this, don't do it. Don't join my members brigade while you're still paying off tremendous amounts of credit card debt. Pay the debt off first, support the show second. That's why the show is free and supporting the show is optional. All right, let's go ahead and uh, take uh, get into the main topic of today's show. Again, um, we're talking about disaster probability, impact, and commonality and how those three, three things uh, kind of interface with each other. And as I said in the intro segment, when I first began constructing uh, modern survival philosophy, the factors of probability, impact, and commonality were each individual principles. Because the entire concept evolved, it, it became apparent that to segregate them was a major error. While the entire philosophy is holistic, meaning, you know, Everything that we talk about actually fits together uh, very well. It interlocks with each other. These three components are more than just holistic. They're so tightly linked that as a common ideal, that none of them really can exist alone. Uh, as soon as I start to understand prob- probability, it's going to lead you to certain questions. And those questions are answered by impact. And then that's going to lead you to, well, what the hell do I do? And those questions are answered by commonality. So it's important that we look at them together uh, as important aspects of our emergency planning process. Let's look at factor one, threat probability. Many in the survival, survival community you know, like to focus on what I call Hollywood disasters. It includes things like total economic collapse, an unstoppable virus, uh, a biological weapons attack, or perhaps a complete shutdown of the electrical grid. Now, look. I'm not saying that stuff won't happen, or can't happen, or never will happen. Hell, we talk about it all the time here now, don't we? Uh, so, yeah, they could happen. But my question to you is, how likely are any of those damn things to happen in the next 30 days? I mean, is it really likely that in the next 30 days, we'll come under a massive biological weapons attack in the United States? 
uh, or that we're going to have the complete, total collapse of the United States economy. Your dollar bill will be worth nothing at all as money. You'll be better off burning it to stay warm in the next 30 days. Right, So it's about how likely the scenario is, especially in your lifetime and to affect you when we look at probability. So we can look at this in a variety of ways. Let's look at some sample questions here, and it starts to become abundantly obvious. Okay, so what is more likely to happen tomorrow morning? Again, tomorrow morning, you or your spouse lose a job with a complete collapse of the United States economy. Well, how many people lost jobs in 2008, 2009, and so far in 2010? How many times in 2008, 9, or 10 has the United States economy completely, I'm not saying things are great, but completely collapsed? You know, Titawaki, end of the world as we know it. Millions? Zero, all right? Okay, is it more likely that a person living near a big city is going to have to deal with localized riots over a regional issue or that a global pandemic is going to cause the death of 50% of the planet's population. Number of times in my lifetime that the 50% of the people on Earth died um, due to a pandemic? Zero. Number of times there's been riots in a localized area over a regional issue? A crap load. We just had it in Oakland. All right? Everybody remembers Rodney King. And there's a ton of riots that we never even hear about. There was one, I can't remember exactly where, somewhere in like the Midwest, kind of that northern you know, Wisconsin area, uh, a few years ago, where it was created on purpose by people that were going to be there because they wanted it to happen on Facebook. And it was, uh, I'll, I'll look it up for you guys and put a link to it. One of the guys who used to work for me wrote an article on it called We Want Tear Gas. And it was just a riot for the sake of rioting. We have to ask ourselves, you know, which which of these things is more likely to, to, to happen? I mean, we just had the riot in California, so let's look at California again. What's more likely to happen in California, for a California resident? Tomorrow morning, are they more likely to be affected by an earthquake? Or are they more likely to be affected by global thermal nuclear war? You tell me. How about this? Are we more likely as a nation, at a national level, pretty big disaster... More likely to face a domestic trucker strike if, let's say, diesel fuel goes up to $6 a gallon uh, because of some short-term you know, effect that makes it unprofitable to drive. You lose money by driving your truck. What do you do? You park it. Um, or are we more likely to you know, wake up tomorrow morning to a global climate shift that destroys 50% of our agriculture across the world? We go into a new mini ice age like that. The global warming people are right, and it, it turns into a desert like that. Which one is absolutely more likely to occur tomorrow morning, or even in, I don't know, the next five years? Now look, the, the reality is that there is a potential for each and every single one of these things that I just mentioned to occur. Some of the ones that are highly unlikely to happen tomorrow or next within the next year are almost inevitable that they'll eventually happen. I don't know about the pandemic that's going to kill half the population in the world, but a pandemic that has a severe mortality and morbidity rate across the planet, that's just a matter of time. But it's still less likely to occur tomorrow than you losing your job. 
And if we're honest and we don't buy into sensationalism, answering those questions, which is more likely, is really easy to do. I mean, anybody that just sat down with a cursory look at them would go, oh, I'm more likely to lose a job than the entire economy collapses because the entire economy is bigger than me. I'm not so arrogant as to believe the only way I can lose my job is for every other person in the world to lose their job, too. That just doesn't make sense. And with that in mind, I created what we call the threat probability matrix. And the rules of the matrix are remarkably simple. Usually when you think of a matrix, you got X and Y axes and all this other stuff. The threat uh, or the threat probability matrix is nothing but a single line of text with some dashes in between it. And it goes this way. Individual, localized, small region, large region, national, global. Now, if you think of one disaster for each of these and ask yourself how likely you are to actually experience this event in the next year or 10 years, you can think of any disaster and just assign it to one of the six categories. And what you'll quickly see is in most, not all, but most instances, the larger the affected area, the lower the probability that it's actually going to happen And more importantly, it's actually going to happen in a way that affects you as an individual. So let's look at it this way. Let's start out. Uh, a, 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 a individual disaster, job loss. A localized disaster. So a very small, uh, not a small region, but I mean your neighborhood-sized disaster. Damage from st strong storms. A thunderstorm comes through, and there's some heavy straight-line winds and some wind shears, and it damages your area. Or it floods your area because you're low-lying. Or lightning starts a fire. You get what I'm saying? Small localized, that's a localized disaster. City riots spreading into the suburbs to a degree. Small region disaster. Just happened a couple weeks, actually a week ago, right? A large region. That would be like a large-scale hurricane uh, damage to a coastal region. So, yeah, that's like a Hurricane Katrina or a Hurricane Andrew, maybe a Hurricane Rita. Not a typical hurricane, a big one that affects multiple states and not just in a way where people evacuate, but true disaster-type scenario. Lights are out for weeks, you know, looting, all of that, you know, all of that stuff. You, when you look at the pictures, you think war zone. That's a large region hurricane. Okay? How likely are those? Do they happen? Yeah, they happen. But how many more people lost a job looking at that threat impact scale? Let's go to national. Let's say a well-organized terrorist attack on 25 major U.S. cities. How many of those have you seen in your life? Is it possible? Yes. And people would say, well, what about 9-11? Well, I would say that's one in God knows how long. We got to go back to like the War of 1812, last time that there was actually, you know, bloodshed in the United States inside our borders on account of war with another nation or any type of we would call terrorism. But even 9/11, I would not classify as a national disaster um, in of itself of the event. It was really a regional disaster affecting the Northeast, and even in the Northeast, it didn't really affect. Most of the people in the Northeast directly, it indirectly affected every single person, including me. But I was landing on a plane in Pittsburgh as the first plane hit the tower. I was in the air that day. The, the biggest thing that it affected me is I couldn't get home. All right, And that was probably the biggest national level effect. But it really didn't stop life in America. Not the way something like blowing up 25 U.S. cities in one day would. It's a total, or somebody, you know, taking an EMP attack against America, shutting down our electrical grid. Those are so much bigger. Those are national because everybody's not just affected. 
everybody's really got problems due to it. When I talk about the scope and size of the disaster, how many people really have life-altering threats to their existence because of it? If you were in Louisiana, in, in southern Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina, you had a real risk of loss of life. If you were hanging out in Dallas, Texas, you might have been affected by Katrina in some way, shape, or form, but you were safe. In fact, if you were in Shreveport, you were plenty safe. So you get my point there. And look at global. Uh, a global disaster would be some type of rap- rapid climate shift brings on a new ice age. Could happen. The number of times you've seen it, and number of times you have lost a job or known someone who lost a job on the other end of the spectrum. And that's all I'm saying is we go from individual to global and everything in between as we expand the number of people that are affected with a few arbitration type things that kind of like cause some overlap like a 9-11 where it's a hybrid. You could say 9-11 didn't affect you because you didn't know anybody that was killed and you weren't in New York City and, and your lights didn't go off in your house but there's a lot of people that lost jobs on the other end of the spectrum, from a large region or small region, depending on how you wanted to define it, 9-11. So it created other components. But in the end, what really affected the person was that individual job loss that just happened to be caused by the economy collapsing in 9-11. Didn't really have to be that. There, there's a million other reasons you could lose a job. So when we look at this, why is it so important? Why does it even matter? I mean, why get down and analyze this stuff to this level? Simply because if you want to properly prepare for potential disasters, there's so much to do that it's easy to become overwhelmed. So many people begin to start preparing, and then they end up what I call falling out, simply because they come to a conclusion it's really not possible to be ready. It's just, you can't do it all. There's no way. You look at all these things that people say in forums, and I talk about on the show, and I've got to do all this stuff, And and how am I ever going to get to a point where I'm actually prepared? And when you put things in order, you begin to dissect and take them down in small bites. Yeah, it really doesn't have to be overwhelming. Um, by considering probability and preparing for the most likely first and proceeding from there, plans, preps, and actions just kind of naturally fall into place as you develop your plan. And as we progress, you'll start to realize that by the time you prepare for an individual disaster and then step up and say, okay, I'm kind of prepared at least to lose my job, right? I've got some food so I don't have to go to the grocery store. Because see, a lot of the, we'll get to commonality here, but a lot of these things overlap. I've got some money saved up. I've kind of paid down my debt. And you kind of look and say, well, at a neighborhood level disaster, I need you know a blackout kit and at least to know my neighbors on a first name basis and a basic small community thing. And then you kind of branch out from there and go, okay, if there was some rioting in town and I couldn't go downtown and it was you know there was you know some type of event like that, and I prepare for just the first three individual neighborhood and, and, and you know kind of a localized and small regional. All of a sudden I sit back and I go, you know what, I'm honestly very well prepared for most disasters, at least as prepared as I can be. That doesn't mean you're done, it doesn't mean you quit, but it means that your life goes from I'm completely unprepared to I'm really prepared, and now I'll just keep increasing my level of preparedness over time. And once you get to that point, it becomes remarkably easy to go, I've got 30 days worth of food, I'd like to get it to 60. Well, how do I get to 30? If I just do the same thing, Going forward, 
that'll happen again. I can do it just as fast and get there just as fast. I can accelerate it and get to 60 faster than I got to 30. Or I can say, I'm comfortable with 30 and take my time getting to 60, maybe take twice as long. It's all based on your individual risk, risk tolerance and your assessment and what fits in your life. Now, factor two is the threat impact scale. And if you've never heard this before, what you were probably thinking when I was talking about threat probability was you know, something like, well, of course I'm more likely to lose a job or have bad weather than to experience a total collapse of the U.S. economy. But the collapse of the U.S. economy is a hell of a lot freaking worse, Jack. Come on. And if you were thinking that, you're absolutely right. It most certainly would be. We prepare for individual level disasters first because they're more probable, not because they're more dangerous. In other words, we just said, hey, look, you can't do everything at first. So it's just like you're a doctor in an emergency room, you know? And they bring two people in. And one guy's leg is broken. He's in a lot of freaking pain. And you really want to help him. But he ain't going to die. The guy next to him has bullet wounds to the chest to the point where he's not even got any life signs anymore. They're bagging him and they're trying to do chest, and they can't even do chest compressors. And you look at his lungs are jelly, right? And then you look at the next guy, and he also took bullet wounds, but he's alive, semi-conscious, fading and bleeding internally. Well, the dude in the middle's dead. Can't save him. Paramedics are nuts trying to save him. You triage him out. He goes to the morgue. When your lungs are jelly, I can't put you back together, right? The guy on the, on the, on the, with the broken leg, if I'm the only doctor, sorry dude, maybe you have a nurse shoot some morphine in him or something, but I'm gonna try to save the guy's life that's dying, and then I'm gonna turn around, and I'm gonna go to the guy with the broken leg. Because I've been put into a scenario where I have to make decisions. The thing is, for most Americans, we are in a place where we have to make decisions, and we deny that. We, we deny it on a constant basis. We sit around and go, everything's going to be tomorrow the way it was today. Well, no, it's not. And if we're honest about the fact that we're vulnerable, if we get away from normalcy bias and we, we stop being uncomfortable with the fact that we are exposed and we decide we want to fix things, then we look at that and we have to make choices. Okay, it would be great to get one book on survivalism that says put all of the following things in your home, hook up your solar system this way, and take that book and go, you know what, this is too much effort, 1-800-INSTALL-MY-SURVIVAL-HOUSE, right? Hey, I'd like someone to come over and take this book by Mr. Survival Expert, and I would like him to take this book and I'd like him to build my house this way in the next 48 hours. Here's a check for $1 million. Please do it. And then somebody showed up and did it. Nothing in that scenario is realistic, though. Even if you have lots of resources, that scenario is still not realistic from a time frame standpoint, from a single source standpoint. So from the guy that packs boxes in a warehouse that makes just over minimum wage to the guy that's uh, the millionaire next door, and everybody in between, we all have limitations and we all have to make choices. So as we look at that, we start to realize that as the probability of disaster decreases, the impact of the disaster tends to correspondingly increase. And In other words, exactly what I said, and it's what we call an inverse ratio. More likely to lose a job, less likely to get hit by an asteroid. Losing a job... Not that big a deal. Hit by an asteroid could be a civilization-ending event. Could be an extinction event if it's a big enough one in the right place at the right time. And those two things are completely inverse with each other. 
again, NASA, for instance, classifies potential impact by a large meteor or a comet as what they call, and this is a quote, a low probability high impact event. In plain language, <laughs> you know what they're saying? It isn't lo highly likely we are, for all intents and purposes, completely screwed if it happens. The threat impact scale is less important to your planning overall than the probability matrix. 99% of the time, if you have a choice to make, the decision of what to do first can simply be made based on probability. So, do I do this, or X, or Y? Which one is going to have the biggest impact if I am affected by a job loss? Okay, Which one's going to have the biggest impact if we go without power for a week? All right? And, you know, go that far and you'll probably, between those two, be able to make a determination. With the limited resources I have, X is first, Y is second. Or Y is first, X is second. Um, but there are times when the two choices seem so close to each other that we really can't decide which one is more important. When we do that, we look at the impact scale. And for us as an individual, as opposed to government planners, is more about motivation to build stable and sustainable lifestyles. If you stick with making your priority decisions based on how probable disaster is for you as an individual, thanks to the commonality of disaster, in short order you'll have most things covered. And what I'm going to discuss next is the commonality of disaster uh, in kind of factor three of this principle. But another thing we need to consider when we look at the impact scale is how to minimize the impact on us as individuals Um, as opposed to, again, the way a government planner looks at this. A government planner goes, this event's going to kill 20,000 people. Can I figure out how to make it kill 10,000 people instead? Because people are going to die, and there's nothing I can do to save everybody. Where we're looking at it and going, we, as a family, and as a community, and as individuals, do not want to die in this event. How do we save our own ass? You, you put it into like a word problem uh, or an algebra problem, it's as simple as this. If event X, so you fill in X with whatever variable you want occurs, what actions can I take both before and after its occurrence to improve my odds of survival and or my ability to remain comfortable? You might actually want to write that down. I mean, that is, that is key to your planning. So I'm going to repeat it, and I'll make sure it ends up in the show notes. If event X occurs, what actions can I take both before and and after its occurrence, to improve my odds of survival and or my ability to remain comfortable. The specific event really isn't important, and that's why I made it a variable expressed as X, which you simply replace with any disaster you think might be a threat to you. This is a simple mental exercise, and it's going to help you in a variety of ways. First, it'll help you form your own personal plan to prepare for anything from minor lifestyle interruptions to major disasters. Second, it's going to reinforce the golden rule of survival. What you do matters. This knowledge is the key to surviving any situation. It will make clear to you the commonalities of disaster that you are more, most likely to face based on your individual lifestyle. It'll point out, for instance, how common food is across the disaster uh, uh, spectrum and across the threat matrix. It will also point out to you exactly how the impact of any potential, potential disaster will affect you, and that alone will lead you to proper preparation based on the resources available to you. I, I made this philosophy to try to be university help, universally helpful to anyone that reads it. This is why we begin with an explanation of things like threat probability and threat uh, impact. 
And, you know, as opposed to many survival manuals, and there's a lot of good ones out there, uh, but they all seem to have a weakness to me. Because they make specific recommendations in general. Do XYZ. Purchase ABC. And the harsh reality is survival is not really about being able to buy specific items or do specific things so much as it's about your individual ability to adapt, overcome, and succeed based on the resources you have or more to the point in spite of the resources you have to do without. There's what I'm going to say again today. Really important. Survival is more about your individual ability to adapt, overcome, and succeed based on the resources you have, or far more importantly, in spite of the resources you have to do with that. If you understand that, you'll realize that what's in your head and how you think is far more important than how deep your pantry is. Because in most instances, there's a way to acquire more food morally. All right, not stealing it from your neighbor and shooting them. I had some people recently email me about how I'm wrong and how if there's a survival situation, it's going to be survival of the fittest and I better wake up. Well, you better wake up and not come to my house looking for, for stuff at survival of the fittest because the guy in the home who knows you're a scumbag has a tactical advantage on you every step of the way in that breakdown. But that's, you know, that's, again, that's the extreme. That's the least likely. We need to focus as a people on, on the most likely thing. And that leads us to factor three in this three-part formula. And that's disaster commonality. And, and honestly, the commonality of disaster may be the most important concept to grasp in developing and living a modern survival lifestyle. When you think about what can go wrong in the world, the list of potential disasters is exhaustive. As you examine these threats, you'll find that they vary greatly in impact and probability and exactly how they threaten you individually. So, again, job loss versus riot versus economic collapse. All three have very different probabilities and impacts on you. Um, most people decide to take control and do something, start by educating themselves to exactly what the current threats are. And what happens is you begin to examine the information, you start to realize how screwed we are, right? When you start to look at the U.S. debt, you go, holy crap, it's frightening, when you realize that we owe more money between now and 2050 than all the money that actually exists in the world, and the only way we could ever fill that hole is to create more money out of thin air, you know we're screwed. When you start reading about viruses and how they mutate and their rates of mutation, and you look at past pandemics, and you look at how screwed up the World Health Organization is supposed to be on top of this stuff is, and you watch them blow something like swine flu, you're like, shit, we're screwed, right? I mean, that's, I say it's overwhelming, but that's, is that not a more accurate way to describe it? If you really pull your head out of the sand, quit being a freaking ostrich, and quit being led like a sheep, and you get out of those two worlds, and you get into a world of being educated, you understand why so many people don't want to do it. It scares the living shit out of you at first. Because it's so much in so many ways. And many times the sheer number of threats can make a person simply want to forget about this whole survivalist thing and go back to sleep. It's like the guy in the Matrix that like went, yeah, I know I ate the one pill and I woke up and I know what's going on. Hell, I just want him to plug the battery cables back into me and put me back and I don't want to know about this crap anymore. And that's what happens to a lot of people. It doesn't have to be that way, though. There's a simple solution. Tied in with the probability matrix, the impact scale is a disaster. Is, is disaster. I, sorry folks, but when you look at the probability matrix and the impact scale, 
the third component is disaster commonality. That simply means that the vast majority of disasters have the same actions that you take to effectively survive and deal with them. Let's look at some of the things that we do as preppers and survivalists. Storing food, the reduction and elimination of debt, developing some level of energy independence, whether it's a backup system or full-scale solar, anything there and anything in between. Growing our own food, permaculture and gardening, that kind of stuff. Saving some money, having cash on, you know, and having cash on hand. Uh, and having an evacuation plan, having a plan. How the hell do I get out of here if I have to leave? I, I hope you can see that, like, most of these fit the majority of potential threats. There's, there's almost nothing there that doesn't fit almost everything that ever could go wrong in some way, or at least will make it more comfortable, even if it's not life-saving. So let's examine those factors, right? Storing food down to having an evacuation plan with two entirely different scenarios. One that's highly probable and one that's not very probable. One with a low impact signature as far as the number of people that it affects and how bad it really is. And one with a high. So starting with a highly probable event, put you in the scenario so you can feel the pain. You go to work tomorrow and you're told there's an all-hands meeting, right? Shortly thereafter, you're handed a severance package, and you have to make a very difficult call to your spouse and tell them what happened. If you lost your job and had to run your household on just your spouse's income, how many of those seven items we just talked about would be useful to you? Let's examine that question one item at a time. Storing food. Self-explanatory. Reduces your grocery bill until you found another job. One less thing to worry about, as I say. Reduction or elimination of debt. I think that speaks for itself. With fewer bills, you can get by with less income. You probably, well, we'll get to that. Uh, energy independence. Any source of energy that you're not paying the electric company for reduces your monthly expenses. So even if it's only 60 watts of power you generate a day, it's 60 watts you don't pay for. Growing your own food again, directly reduces your grocery bill if you're growing your own food. Saving money. I, I, if I have to explain to you why saving money uh, will help you when you're unemployed, I, I don't know what else to say. Keeping cash on hand, right, for, you know, when you can't get to the ATM machine. It, does it directly affect the fact you lost the job? No, but if you have that little bucket of extra cash, that just adds up to what? More saved money in this situation. An evacuation plan, okay? You don't need one for a job loss. Except, I guess maybe if you had one, maybe you could use it, change it into a relocation plan, but I, I'd be stretching it, right? So, six of the seven directly apply to the situation of losing your job. And that really is looking at, again, highly possible individual disaster losing a job. So let's examine a far less probable, massively different, larger impact event. It's 8.30 p.m., you've just arrived home, and you notice a strange flickering in the sky, right? And the lights go out. Worse yet, the lights stay out for a very long time. They are out across much of the world. A massive solar ejection has fried the electrical grid. This is not the most probable of occurrences, but according to you know our scientists at places like NASA, uh, it is definitely possible. We can examine this threat in more detail uh, if we want to, but for now, let's just ask the same seven preparations and, and how they would affect us. Storing food. 
Without electricity, stores would have massive food spoilage. Much of the distribution system would be affected, and food would become short in supply very quickly. So that stored food might just keep you alive in that situation. Reducing, reducing and elimination of debt. Now, you'd think that this is not really that important. If everybody's power is out, you know, what's that going to be? Um, I'll have to ask you, though, is your company going to be in business or will your spouses be in business if all the power goes out? Odds are they won't be. And it will take creditors a while to sort things out, but eventually we'll start to turn power back on. It's not like, it's not like, well, if the power goes out, man, it'll be like the dark ages for 200 years. No. See, we already know how electricity works. We have the knowledge. We will turn it back on. It might take a year. It might take two. It ain't going to be a hundred years. And when that power comes back on, your creditors will find you and they will want to be paid. Period. I don't care what happens. One thing you can, you can bet, MasterCard and your bank will keep chasing you for debts you owe in, in just about any situation as long as they still exist. Um, growing your own food. Same as storing food and you'd be better able to handle the food shortages. Energy independence. It's pretty obvious how having electricity when no one else does would be a good thing for you, right? So even if it's only a little bit, at least you can turn some lights on and maybe run a few appliances. Saving money. When the grid came back up, you'd be better off. But since I mean a bank account here, it wouldn't really do you that much good until the power is restored. So let's say the money in the bank is not a big advantage, so that one's out. Um, keeping cash on hand. The fact that your bank account would be useless is exactly why cash would be so useful in this event. And people would say, well, you know, um, uh, you know, in this event, man, like, uh, you know, we'd be trading bullets and band-aids and, and cans of food. Maybe eventually. But initially, cash is going to be king. People will still take cash at first, as long as they think the lights are coming back on sometime in the relative near future. And, and, and cash would probably stay in circulation. In fact, one of the things the government would probably do in this scenario is use those big backup generators down at the Treasury to print a bunch more bills and get more cash into circulation by any means necessary. Because they would want to keep the currency alive until they brought back the computer systems. Believe it or not, that probably would happen. Um, I don't know if, I'm not saying it would work. I'm saying it would happen. Um, and you need to understand that a lot of things that our government does would keep going because they do have redundancy plans in place. They have their, their individual uh, agencies have their own survival plans. That's why you should have one too. If our government does it for themselves, maybe you should do it for yourself. Now your evacuation plan. Um, there's a very real probability uh, that in such an environment you may have to evacuate. Specifically if you live near major cities where you're more likely to have the scum of the earth create riots and widespread panic and things like that. Hopefully you have somewhere to go and preparedness made at that location. You have some kind of a bug out location. But I gotta tell you how big an advantage it is to have an evacuation plan, uh, and, and act quickly when everybody else stays put and waits and then all decides to do it in mass. So that evacuation plan is critical. So once again, six of the seven items on the list are directly helpful, um, in a very different and far more serious disaster. In the second scenario, even the money in the bank is useful as long as the grid comes back at some point. Trust me, when the power comes back on, man, I'm telling you, uh, you're going to need every dollar you can get your hands on. So what I'm hoping you can do is begin to see that we are all humans. We all have similar needs and wants, 
uh, that a disaster is far less, you know, the disaster itself is far less important as far as what it is than how our needs and wants are affected when the disaster occurs. Planning, prepping, and surviving are not really about the disaster. They're really about addressing the needs and to a lesser extent the wants that all disasters force us to do without. You know, every time there's a disaster in a third world nation, what do they ask for? Food, water, medical supplies, and comfort items. Every single time. Those are the same things that they ask for. That's what we should focus on uh, with our prepping. The beauty of disaster commonality, if there could be any beauty to disaster, is that it makes prepping for a highly possible low-impact event not much different than prepping for a highly uh, a low-probability, high-impact event. It simplifies your survival thinking down to simply having the ability to provide for needs and wants without complete dependence on the systems of modern society. Once you begin to examine the commonality, you realize that modern survivalism is as much about living a better life today if nothing goes wrong as it is about being prepared for the worst of occurrences. You start to realize that our above seven preps don't really have a downside, even if you don't lose your job, and the electrical grid never fails. Today, the average American family, folks, these are real statistics here. Average American family has over $20,000 of unsecured debt. That's credit card and consumer level debt. Two car payments, less than a two-week supply of food in the house, no source of really fresh produce other than the supermarket, and a lifestyle and a budget that places them only one to two paychecks away from being in poverty. You tell me who's better off even if nothing goes wrong. The Prepper family or the typical Jones family. And I'm going to ask you right now, which one of those two would you really want to be? And this brings us down to the core of things, folks. This is where it really crystallizes. This is where we should begin to realize that probability, impact, and commonality, these three together as a single factor <clears throat> in modern survival philosophy, really pull the entire rest of everything that we talk about in together around it. Because it is about the better life today, not just surviving if life gets really shitty tomorrow. We have got to start to realize, as a people, and I'm not even saying as Americans now, I'm saying as a people on this planet, that we have enough information, knowledge, education, and resources to make our lives better and to put redundancy into our lifestyle. And to have a life that doesn't have to be catastrophically altered by an event that's really not that big. We talk about the Hollywood disasters a lot. Uh, I think because it makes good movies, and it makes us dig deep and ask ourselves, how would I deal with this? Um, every man, <clears throat> every man, I believe, really wants to know, if I had to face down a lion, could I do it? And they would like to believe that the answer is yes. The heart of the hunter really beats in every man's chest. Even the eco-hippie freak, this is, you don't eat meat, man, somewhere in him. Even if he would never do the lion harm, he wants to know if he was in a point with no choice. And there's the complete freak, okay? Leave the complete freak out. But even the average, normal, halfway normal, eco-hippie freak wants to know, if I had to, man, could I do it? And that universal commonality, if we'll just get down to it and reach it, I can stand up to things that are hard. I don't have to cower. I don't have to be in fear. And I don't have to be a child in this world. I think that's the real problem. 
as a people, the civilized world has turned into children instead of adults. We have companies and governments that say, it's all going to be okay. Life is a freaking Disney movie. We'll fix it if it breaks. Good always wins. The good guy always gets the girl. The cowboy rides away in the sunset. Bullshit. Life is dangerous. Life is hard. And there's a million things in this world that can kill you dead like that. And what I'm saying is, to be an adult in our modern society, you have to accept that and not fear it at the same time. And if you think it's hard, it's not. It's a hell of a lot easier than what our grandparents did on the beaches of Normandy and Iwo Jima. Doing that was hard. Accepting the fact that we're mortal and that we die eventually and things can kill us between now and the time we plan for death, that's not that hard. Accepting the fact that when you're told everything is super, the person telling you that has an agenda and might be lying to you, that's not hard. Accepting the fact that you can do something about it is not that hard. And if we did that, we wouldn't live in a nation where the average American is two to three paychecks from bankruptcy. Because when I, got, when I started talking about this, and I kind of lost it there on a tangent. I apologize, guys. What I was trying to say is, we talk about the Hollywood disasters, the big ones, the meteor impact, pandemic, economic collapse, anything like that. And we look at that stuff, and we say, boy, that's really bad. And then we look at something like a job loss and say, that's pretty mundane. Not what happens to you and you're completely unprepared. Families have been destroyed by a job loss. Even when a family stays together, people have lost everything they've owned in a job loss. Mom and dad seem to have it all. Mom's stay-at-home mom. She's involved with the PTA and everything else. Dad's a member of the country club. Makes a hundred and a half a year or more. And they really have so much income. If they were being smart with it, they could put redundancy in their life for years to come, within two years of his job. But he works it for five years. Ten. I mean, they should actually be at that point. They should be millionaires. Ten years. into a $150,000 a year job, you should be a functional millionaire at least. At least. But instead, all they have is a 401k that they don't want to pull out that's well underfunded because we kept doing stuff, you know? When mom had the first baby, we went out and we bought a great big $80,000 Cadillac SUV so mom could cart the kids around, and the kid wasn't even freaking born yet. And then the MasterCard, the Discover, and the Visa came, and, and they were like three new kids that we had to go out and entertain. So we took them dining and dancing and on trips and vacations, and all of a sudden this family that should be a functional millionaire family that's living a dream life, dad loses that job. And spoiled, rotten little children start crying and screaming because Billy can't do soccer this year. It's not fair, oh, my friend. And because parents can't be adults and say, Billy, you'll get over it. They make stupid decisions even after the job loss. And they say rational bullshit like, I just want my kids to have a sense of normalcy. As though unless he plays in this expensive soccer league and you spend tremendous amounts of gas still driving that gas guzzler around because, oh my God, it would be so embarrassing if Billy had to get a ride with a friend to go play soccer or if mom pulled up in a compact car that we're going to keep the big SUV we can't afford. And Debbie still has to go to freaking ballet. 
And no one's come to accept the fact that we've gone from $150,000 a year income to $400 a week of unemployment, if that, depending on the state you live in. And dad has no prospects for a job. Six months later, you're getting eviction notices from the bank or repossession notices from the bank. Or you're applying for some type of government aid to try to stay in your home. A year later, mom and dad hate each other. The kids think that their life is ruined. And repo men are taking the car away because the SUV went a long time ago. Dad still doesn't have a job. Family's in divorce. And mom wants some ridiculous amount of child support from dad. And dad doesn't even have a freaking job. Oh, and she wants 50% of his 401k, of course. Of course, the 401k isn't what it used to be because it was already liquidated. Paid huge penalties on so they could try to survive that year. And how many families have had scenarios just like this happen? Because not only were they not prepared for the disaster, when the disaster occurred, they refused to accept that that was a disaster. And that might be more dangerous. People that lose jobs and try to pretend everything's normal. You're not honest with your kids. You know, I'd say, Billy, you know what? You're not playing freaking soccer because daddy can't afford it right now. When I find a new job, we'll look into that. You want to play soccer? Here's the ball. There's the front yard. Go. Find some friends. Deal with it. You know what? That's what it was like for children in this country for 80 years that I know of. I'm sure it was worse for 180 years and tougher for 180 years. I'm about 1900 forward. You know, all the way up to the 1980s when I was a kid, when a family didn't have money to do something, then a kid went out and played. Billy didn't get a new Atari back in 1985 when Dad didn't have a job. But in 2010, Billy has a right to a Sega or Xbox or whatever the hell the kids play today. I don't even know. I don't play video games. That's where we've come to, and it's because we don't understand the most basic fundamental realities of being a human being anymore. And looking at life and accepting the greatest gift that you've been given as a life form. All right, Not as a human, not on a spiritual level, as a life form. For survivability as a life form. You as a human being have something no other life form does. The ability to anticipate threats and plan multiple scenarios, find the best one and have it in place in advance of the threat, even if it's a threat you've never experienced before. A squirrel hides a nut, but he doesn't really comprehend winter. The ant collects the food and puts it in the ant mound and goes down in the winter and stays alive below the surface. But it doesn't really understand winter. It doesn't really comprehend it. It's a hard wiring and an instinctual response. The ant can't say, you know, winter might actually be six months instead of four months this year. We better do more. The ant can't say, hey, it's supposed to be winter, but it's not. We have Indian summer. Let's go keep working. Even if they do keep working, they don't know why. The ant can't observe the fact, hey, there's all this Bermuda grass stuff around us, and I keep hearing a loud noise of a lawnmower. Maybe we need to move where we live before the creatures that walk around us poison us to death. 
it's a threat to our survival. Can't do it. And no other animal life form that we know of can actually assess and plan for threats in advance. The most advanced primates, chimpanzees and gorillas, no clue. Chimp can't think to himself, hey, you know, and I mean these guys use tools, right? The closest thing to a human there is. Not a, an inkling of ability to plan for disaster in advance. And when we as a people say, screw it, it's fine, I don't need to worry about it, it's cool. You know, they'll fix it. We take that gift that we've been given as a life form and we, we, we just throw it in the trash. We crap on it. It's the thing that's made us successful as a species. It's the thing that's made us the most successful, successful species that's ever existed. And the environmentalists will say, and somewhat rightly so, and we're, we're causing our own extinction due to our own adaptability and our own overpopulation and excessive use of resources. And to a degree, he's right. But to a degree, and for, I think a bigger degree, it's, it's what I'm telling you. The whole reason we have those catastrophes is because collectively we've, we've thrown away the gift to look into the future and plan around the consequences of stupid action. And say, you know what, we're going to stop doing this. Or, no, I can't stop people from doing this, so I'm going to be prepared for the eventuality of what these stupid people are doing. You know, I'll put it to you this way. Every generation before us understood this. No one had to teach them. No one had to talk to them about it. Every single generation before the people walking around now And a lot of the people walking around now that are the older generation, the, the last generation that's about to leave, the World War II generation, from their back, knew these things. Be prepared. Have a plan. Make sure you're ready for winter. You don't just get what you want because you want it. You're not entitled. You don't have a right to a video game or you don't have a right to a basket. You don't have a right to crap except life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Every generation that walked the planet until now got it. We're the first generations, and I'll say generations, because it goes you know, back to the baby boomers and forward. Now that we call the internet natives and everything in between those two generations. We're the first group of generations that didn't understand these things intrinsically. If I would have been able to do a survival podcast somehow in 1900, they would have said, this guy's kind of entertaining and fun to listen to, but basically he gets on the air every day and says, hey, the sky's blue and the grass is green. No shit, I already knew that. What I do now is try to replace forgotten wisdom and bring modern technology into it. And I don't do it so much because... I'm concerned that tomorrow morning we could have the end of the world as we know it. I do it because every single day out there, somebody somewhere loses a fight they didn't have to lose. A family is destroyed. A life is destroyed. A home is lost. A person lives in fear and makes stupid decisions in their life out of fear. A person consigns themselves to an existence devoid of their passions and their goals and their loves and the things that they want because they think they have no other choice. Those are the reasons I do this show every day. Those are the reasons that even if I get up one morning and I'm like, I don't really feel like doing this today. 
I say I've, I've got to do it because maybe I'll reach one more person today and they'll realize their life doesn't have to be you know, a leaf in wind and wherever you end up is wherever you end up. Whether it's about disaster or it's about choosing how you're going to live and how you're going to design your life, how you're going to plan your life. I do this because every day people finally hit 72 or 69 or 74, whatever arbitrary number they decided they could retire at, and then they retire, and then maybe they have a little bit of enjoyment, and then they look at it and they go, I'm old and my back hurts and I can't hike the mountains that I always dreamed about and I never did. I do it because every day investment companies show you pictures of old people walking down the beach carrying their shoes and promise that'll be you if you just stay the course and do what life has told you to do. And I realize you don't have to wait that long for it. I do it because every single person that listens to this show is important to me. Because we're all bound by one commonality. We're all human beings. And we're all beginning to wake up to these realities that we're talking about today. And we're starting to realize they're not so scary, they're not so frightening, that if we just get past the, the surface of them, and we look at the risks, and we begin to plan for the re risks, we realize that the risk planning creates its own rewards. That if we can be prepared for all the systems around us to crumble... And we can get ready for that to happen in case it does. By the time we solidify our lives that way, and the systems are still here, our life is a thousand times better than most of the people around us. And there's no reason for us to work 80 hours a week anymore. And we can do the soul-building things with the people that we love that are most important to us. In other words, I do this because I believe that proper planning... And proper preparedness living and homesteading and having a house that is a producer versus a consumer. All of these things put together help people if there's a disaster. And if there isn't, you end up in early semi-retirement. You can actually do the things in your life that you really give a shit about. And I'm tired of seeing people in this nation and in this world having the best years of their lives stolen by being sold a false dream. By believing they're not in control, you just have to fit in. I'm tired of having conversations with, with some of my best friends that say, well, I'm glad it's working out for you, but it'll be a long time before I have any real freedom. It crushes my soul when I hear a human being speak that way. What the hell makes you think I'm any better than you? Seriously. Anybody out there that thinks, well, he could do it, but not me, bullshit. And it's not whether or not you have a business of your own. It's how effectively do you use the resources that you have. You might have a good job that pays really good money. And you might not want to ever have a business or do a show or have a blog or ever even post one time in a forum. Maybe you listen to this show and that's it. You've never even been to my website. Fine. I'm telling you still the same thing. If you effectively use your resources, plan for disaster the right way, all of a sudden you start creating freedom in your life. You start seeing opportunities. You start realizing some of the skills you need to learn lead to actual recreation. It's amazing what happens. And I know we started out with commonality, probability, you know, impact. And also now we're on this like kind of a lifestyle changing philosophy.
but the two are completely interlocked together. Because like I said, the reality is when you can prepare to deal without systems of support, you can have a hell of a life while the systems of support are still here. You can really look at them as advantages and luxuries and pick and choose from them as fits your life best rather than lull yourself into a false sense that you need them. And you stop living in fear and you start becoming empowered. Empowered as a human being. That's what I want for each and every one of you. I know sometimes when I say things like I care about you, you're important to me. You think this guy's just full of shit trying to make a buck. But I'm telling you, I do. I care about every single person that listens to this show. Because, to be honest with you, it's the most selfish thing that I can do. The more we can do as a people to create lifestyles that are actually enjoyable and stable and honest about what threatens them, the more stability we create for each other. We'd be a hell of a lot better off if all 300 million of us in this country thought and worked and lived with a modern survival philosophy. The bad news is ain't going to happen. Most people are going to stay ostriches. Most people are going to stay sheeple. Most people are going to keep their head buried in the sand. But the good news is, no one in this world affects you more than you affect yourself. You are in control of your life. Not a politician, not a company, not your next door neighbor, you know, not an idiot on reality TV. You control your own life. You control the inputs and you control the outputs. Take hold of those things. Understand how they affect you and make the best decisions you can for tomorrow and take the right actions today. This has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or you can stay Nobody up there cares, they're living for